G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. Good evening everybody and welcome to another episode of the Hunter's Campfire podcast. I've got a couple of likely characters uh, on the uh, on the episode today, well Mark and I do I should say, Mark being one of those likely characters and the other one um, should we call him the infamous Brian Boyle or just Brian Boyle? <laughs> Look, Brian's been around uh, the hunting industry for a long, long time. Uh, when I first joined the Australian Deer Association, I got to know Brian um, around the place and was lucky enough to head up to the Northern Territory and spend a little bit of time with him uh, on a trip up there um, when I thought that I was going to easily wander up there and chase some buffalo in the heat and um, got sent a lesson or sent home with a lesson, I guess. Uh, on what the Northern Territory is actually all about. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of that on the podcast. But welcome, Brian. Uh, thanks very much for joining us tonight. I really look forward to this conversation. In, this, in the spirit of, uh, of uh, Queenslanders um, hunting and, and looking at all of the opportunities that we have um, to, to chase down, we've, we've covered a lot down south. We've covered New South Wales, state forest hunting. We've covered a little bit in Victoria. Had a conversation with, um, with a fellow from South Australia, well, it was South Australia, wasn't it, Mark, the other night? Yep. And um, and now we want to head north and talk about the Northern Territory. But before we get to that, Brian, it'd be great to get a little bit of your background and history. Um, we know you've had your hand in quite a few different programs uh, around hunting, and it'd be great to share with the listeners a little bit of that. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't mind, that'd be great. Well, yes, um, and Lake Sumner is a recreational hunting area. I was based out of um, Hamner Springs. And uh, looked after that area and, and also did a bit of work on Canada geese and, and uh, native birds as well. Um, in about 1990, I got sick of the uh, what was happening in New Zealand with constant uh, restructures in my department, me being a new graduate, you know, only out for three or four years, I was always worried about my job. So jumped on a plane, went across to Tasmania and threw my CV in every ranger station in Tassie because I knew they had trout and deer. So that, I didn't know there was deer on the mainland in Australia at that stage. So I went to Tassie. And I got a job at um, Freycinet and uh, loved working at Freycinet. I used to look after Malting Lagoon Game Reserve there and um, involved hunters in programs at Malting Lagoon Game Reserve, as well as, um, you know, the other range of duties I, I did. I was down in um, Hobart one day and uh, just happened to bump into an American guy in the hallway and it was Brian Murphy. He was just a young fellow to arrive across from the States and had a chat to him. And, you know, me being a dead keen Dead, uh, deer hunter, I, and he was he was amazed because I was the first guy actually was really interested in what he was doing, um, you know, with the deer management project. So I um, had a good chat to him, and I was actually doing a master's program at Charles Sturt University at that stage, and I switched it over to an honours project so I could uh, do an honours uh, um, research project under Brian Murphy. And so I did that for two years and uh, you know, got an honours degree out of that. I, I did it on the biology of deer in eastern Tasmania. Um, and in between that, I moved up to Flinders Island and managed 
um, the cake bearing goose cull and uh, you know the quail hunting and you know, did duck counts. And I was a, I was a bird bander there as well. Also helped out with research um, on the east coast of Tassie into you know in the early days of uh, finding out what the impacts of uh, lead was and capturing swans and taking blood samples. Uh, from Flinders Island, I, I moved up. I, while I was in Flinders, I actually went up. I was going backwards and forwards to Guinea to do my honours course and um, did some samba hunting in Victoria, and that was it. I was bitten by the bug. So I waited for a job to come up in uh, Victoria and I applied for a job at Lake Eildon. I hope I'm not waffling here too much, guys. But anyway, I moved to, I moved to Lake Eildon. And I, was, I, was, uh, I was actually living in Fraser National Park and the boys said, no, oh, look, there's, there's deer across at Mansfield, you know, but there's none around here. And I went out for have a, uh, just a pee off the back porch one night and I got honked by a salmon. I went, shit, I've arrived, you know, and <laughs> just now right on a doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, for the next eight years, I, I was um, living and working around uh, Alexandra in Victoria, and I was the, um, I uh, managed a couple of parks there and did some time up in the Alpine National Park and was on the um, Alpine Liaison uh, Scientific Liaison Committee as well. But I was the sort of deer person in um, in northeast Victoria at that stage because, you know, because of my background in New Zealand, I knew what was going to happen with deer. And I was trying to convince them that they actually needed to do some research on them. and um, I was advised by a very uh, knowledgeable person in the department at that stage, we don't need to do research on deer, Brian, there's enough for the hunters to hunt. I went, okay, you know, and um, so I, I used to uh, help researchers out and get, you know, take them out and show them deer and, uh, you know, give, give them what advice it was. But I was just a ranger with honest degree. I wasn't a doctor or anything like that. Um, so I was there for about eight years and I was I did pest management programs there. So I couldn't believe it. You know, I, was, I was actually getting paid to go out and shoot pigs and track goats and then, um, you know, do a bit of deer research. I was just, I was happy as a pig and shit, but you could actually be happier as, as it turns out. I got an email from a guy called Robert Brown. Who was a, uh, he was a, he's a life member of the ADA. Out of the blue come from somewhere. He says, look, there's this thing called the Gun Council starting up in New South Wales and we want an operations manager. You know anybody might be interested? I said, "Shit, yeah, I know heaps of guys. I'm not going to tell them because I want the job." <laughs> <laughs> so um, I ended up having an interview at uh, Hillsville. I was looking after Hillsville as the ranger in charge at that stage. I went down there, and they came down and interviewed me. And Rod Drew was on the interview panel, and Brown, and a guy called uh, McKinney, who was the C was the CEO of the Gang Cows at that stage. So they interviewed me, and. Um, a couple of weeks later, I was actually up in Sydney having a look at this, the rooster deer research that Andrew Moriarty, who's, um, who became the CEO of the, uh, the licensing unit, uh, he was a, a young PhD student at that stage, and I went up to have a look at what he was doing. And while I was up there, um, Robert Borsak and David Lanehelm interviewed me again, um, you know, about, um, you know, the job for the for the ops manager. And, and getting near the end or uh, near the end of the interview, Borsak says to me, oh, when was the last time you went hunting? I went, oh, yesterday. <laughs> and he says, oh, bullshit. And I says, well, I've actually got a stag in the boot. <laughs> so oh. he, I said, the Parks Victoria car at that stage, and I had, and I had a bloody a rooster stag in the boot. And he said, okay, show me. And he walked out and he saw it in the boot. It was a nice little 30-inch out. And he goes, oh, shit. He says, oh, you better come around to my place. He says, that's what actually got me the job. <laughs> so he knew I was actually keen on hunting. Wow. So we had eight years of um, work at... Um, the Game Council, which involved us, had a fair bit to do with opening up state forests. And, uh, you know, I've spent seven and a half years of that time as the CEO. So I, was, I really enjoyed it. And I think we did a good job of 
um, you know, getting hunting really established on public land. Uh, there was the demise of it. Barrier Farrell was paying back the shooters' party, uh, and that was pretty painful for myself. But um, I went across to biosecurity then, and um, and then when the senior officers review came out, I took a redundancy and and started up here in the territory. Two weeks later, on a biosecurity program. When I moved up here, um, the guys, uh, the local ADA branch, had heard that I was um, up here, and uh, I sort of got asked if I would sort of um, help established the new club or that Glenn, Glenn was about 80, um, you know, would I be the president? So, hey, okay, so I, I did that and I was on the firearms council. I was asked to, you know, join the firearms council at the first meeting when they, they knew my sort of background. They asked if I would chair the public land hunting committee and um, help with establishing some hunting on uh, national parks up here, which was called the Backcountry Hunting Programme. So I had a look at what they were doing and it was basically a copy of the New South Wales thing. So I started going to the meetings and worked with them with, with parks and developed the systems that we currently now do. The only difference was, you know, we're, we don't have the resources like um, New South Wales and Victoria. So we actually do a lot of the, or the, we, the Firearms Council does a lot of those, um, you know, the processing and, and I do the accreditations and, and we basically run the program and make it as easy as parks uh, for as parks as possible. And we've got look, you know, two or three hundred thousand hectares out in Litchfield. It's not wonderful hunting. It's not the floodplain hunting with great herds of, um, you know, animals running across it. But it is pretty damn good hunting. And I'll, I'll send you some photos, hopefully, to include in the podcast. But yeah. it's been running very successfully for five years now. We've accredited about six hundred guys. We've pulled in about sixty thousand dollars, which we put back into the park. So the parkies love us. You know, we buy gates for them, signs. We give them uh, security cameras. The place has never been cleaner. Um, so we've, you know, we've built toilets out there now. We first just dug some holes in the ground, stuck a bucket with a bloody toilet seat on it, with, um, and I just hex screwed it into the ground for a start. But now we've got real toilets. We've got fireplaces. We've got, you know, really comfortable. And the, the parkies really like us. Last year we uh, we bought them a fire dragon so they can do uh you know, fireworks, uh, you know, they can do uh, lighting up better. And uh, we pay for a helicopter to do some spraying. And and um, we've just got a government grant uh, for the Firearms Council. And we bought a um, an ATV with a spray unit on. And we're really going to try and help with the weeds program. So it's uh, we get on really well with the parkies. They're, they're totally different up here, you know, because I've worked in New Zealand, Tasmania. They're as close to New Zealand, I think, as, as possible up here. All the parkies hunt, get out in the bush. Uh, you know, they're real uh, bushies and uh, they appreciate what hunting's about. And the other good thing about what's happened is, uh, you know, there's a lot of TOs, uh, traditional owners, Indigenous people uh, work in parks and, and it's their country. And, you know, the earlier in the year when we were opening up the blocks because I go out there and, and clear the, uh, the campsites at the start of the year, um, Adrian, who's one of the local TOs, uh, had a chat to us and he was really wrapped with the job that we'd done We've, you know, we've absolutely smashed the horses on the place. They don't see as much pig and buffalo, so there's still enough there to go hunting, but we've really smacked the animals down, and they're very happy with the way the place is now. There's no rubbish, no trespassing. Uh, they don't get legal fires. Yeah, it's the same everywhere. You know, hunters are really responsible if they're given the chance, and and just by doing that accreditation, uh, it's sorted out the char from the good stuff here, and, and the guys we've got have been really good. So... Uh, you know, that's it in a snapshot. I hope I haven't waffled too much, guys. I'm still very keen on my hunting. Um, 
had had a bit of an involvement with the ADA board. I'm not really a board type person, to tell you the truth. I, I'm more operations. I like getting shit done. Um, so I, I did that for a few years. But when the chance came to, to pass it on to someone who'd be better, um, I did. Um, but I, I do enjoy uh, getting getting stuff going like I'm doing and uh, with the BCH and also work in the Northern Land Council, which is a, an Aboriginal council up here that you know manages an area that's about half the size of the other states, uh, you know, in Australia. And I'm, I'm doing the compliance management for that and and starting to try to talk to them about how they can better manage hunting. And, and so it benefits the um, Indigenous communities and gives hunters access to that. But you know, I'm just not sure how that will actually go, but we're just trying to lay that seed there at the moment. We've definitely got the seed in national parks up here. We've just got to get it to that next step when things hopefully turn back to normal with COVID. Mm. I'll hand it back to you now, guys. Hopefully you're still awake. Oh, no, that's great. I'll throw you the first question. I'm sure Mark's got hundreds. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, it might have been in the preamble, um, that you went up to uh, the Northern Territory for a seven-month stint. You're there seven years later and you're about to wind up and head back down south to Newcastle. I'm a bit disappointed um, to hear that you've, you left New South Wales after getting its shit sorted out. You flew the Northern Territory, you got that. You forgot to stop in the middle, uh, and that's what this podcast's about. How do we get you to stop partway for seven years and, and turn this government around and, and, and get us hunting in, in Queensland? Or is, is, is that just too hard, Brian? Well, if you lose seven state of origins in, in a row, I'll probably come and help you guys. Given the moment. <laughs> and it's, it's shaping up that way, so you never know. <laughs> I'm a loyal blue. Sorry, boys. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. Wind that up here, Mark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, actually, the all blacks, but I do, I do watch some Brian's just proven you can't be good at everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky situation in Queensland because you've got all that hunting and you just, the thing to convince the um, the pollies is going to be if you don't actually manage the hunting, you're, only, you're managing for illegal hunting because that's what's currently happening. They're not actually managing and excluding hunters, they're only excluding the good guys. So that, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's quite an interesting way of looking at it. That's that's the way. I, that's what I believe. I, you know what goes on in Queensland. Yeah, I know. But I mean, that's a great way of summarising it. You know, if you if you're not managing for legal activity, all you're doing is managing for illegal activity. Then. Yeah, yeah, and you know why not take a positive benefit out of it, and and then you know that they put guys through an R license. You know that simple bit of uh, education sorts a lot of guys out, and also it just means they're going to possibly be that little bit safer. You know the DPI. New South Wales DPI has done a fantastic job with compliance and also with the um, with the education programs. You know that outreach or whatever. Mm. I'm really proud of what Andrew and uh, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know who the CEO is down there now, but Andrew Moriarty took it to the next uh, level. And uh, you know those guys should be really proud of where they where they've gone. And you know now it's embedded in government and it's doing a really good job. Mm. But you know Queensland. Yeah, just you've got so many opportunities, uh, but luckily you've got a lot of you know private land up there you, you can possibly access. But for those who can't access it, and also you've got a lot of resources in and around uh, Brisbane that you could actually hunt for red deer, for rooster, and God knows what else is up there now. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. I keep thinking about that. You know, as you said, you know, if you're not if you're not managing for illegal, then you're managing for you know you you are managing for illegal. So yes. 
if we kind of skip Queensland then, because that, that that that's a really good way of summing it up. So what's 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 from a hunting point of view? So what are you a deer man, or what, where where do you sit on? Do you think? Well, I, I started out. Uh, my father was a, a duck duck walker. They called duck shooters in those days. So I started out. I was mad keen um, birdo for a start, and then. Uh, at Scouts, you know, when I was about 14, someone showed us a video of shooting deer and that was it for me. And, uh, but, I, you know, from the age of nine, I was hunting ducks. And I, and I still shoot birds. I really enjoy it. I think, uh, you know, um, shooting Californian quail in the riverbeds of North Canterbury is the sport of kings. Um, and, you know, shooting Canada geese or, you know, even these magpie geese, but Canada geese, you know, flying up a valley is, is superb. But, you know, deer... I love deer. I really love hunting chamois in the summer in North Canterbury. You know, and you can walk all day, sit down, have a snooze in the snow tussocks if it's not raining, get up and have another hunt. And I absolutely love tar hunting, but it's starting to get a bit more of a challenge because at 64, the body's not quite what it used to be. And uh, the nerve starts going too. But um, yeah, look, when, uh, I'll be heading back to New Zealand hopefully in February. And I'll um, be either zipping somewhere for a quick tar hunt or a chamois hunt while I'm there. And possibly up to walk tip to have a look for whitetail. I, I'm uh, uh, deer tragic, so you know I will read as much shit as I can on deer. I just love the stuff anywhere to do with their biology, because a deer is a deer is a deer. That's what Errol Mason once quoted. It's dead, dead set true. They are so similar all across, uh, you know, the species. And then when you actually watch things like banting and buffalo, Jesus, you know, bovines and deer are very similar as well. They just you know, slightly different size, but they um, banting behave very much like deer when you watch them, they're, and they're mm. beautiful animals. But no, I'm definitely in the deer thing, and, I, and I'm actually very proud to be a member of the ADA. I think they do uh, a really good job, and you know Barry Howlett is uh, an unsung hero for what for what he does for us. Um, you know, and the board is really trying to push things along. And the other thing that I I'm committed to is even though I'm at the other end of the country, I'm a Proud Sunday Island member, Para Park Cooperative. I haven't been down there for a couple of years, but um, I absolutely love that place. Uh, if you live anywhere within, you know, nine or ten hours drive, and you're not a member, I reckon you're a mug. You know, it's just hmm. the best place to go, just to observe deer. It's really well managed. I've got a great little hut in it. There's nothing better than having a roaring suddenly and, and a good single malt and looking out of the sea and then going out for a hunt when it, when it when the wind drops down. It's just and you know, you see hoggies and you can observe them because they come out to the open. Yeah. I, I love watching uh, deer and just, you know, there's so many things that um, they do that are just so bloody interesting. And and so much of it is just sort of subliminal stuff, just the way they walk in. Or, you know, when you see a mature stag, whether it's a, um, you know, a Samba or a Pierre Davis deer, I've watched them rutting in, uh, in England. Or uh, a hog deer, you know, a mature stag. They all walk the same. They, they they walk heavy. Their heads are heavy. It's just fantastic watching them. And when they walk into it, and they they are the biggest one. Just the way the subdominants react to them. And I just love all that reaction. And just the way they they bow or they move to the side or you know if something's about the same size. They might do a parallel walk. All of that behavioural stuff is so good. And then the best part is you shoot one, and they're bloody great to eat. So it's just. You know, how good are you? Know, it's, just, it's just a great package when you go hunting them. But, you know, I enjoy hunting everything from rabbits up to buffalo, and I enjoy eating them as well. So, You, you know, you, you, you're right about the, the behaviour because 
when I was in England hunting monk jack. You know, monk jack don't look like a deer. They don't they don't move physically like a deer. Mm. You know, they they've got this more of a like a like a hare type of gait. But uh, on the on dawn, the doe came out, and the buck followed her. And that buck could have been a red. He could have he it just all of a sudden that little tiny thing was a buck. Well, you know, it wasn't. He wasn't a muntjac. He was a buck. He, the way he moved, the whole lot, you know, complete disregard for anything other than that trail he was following. And basically, and that's how I got him because he just came out of he came out of the woods and he just trotted across like like any buck does when he when when he, when he's following a hot hot doe. And that was it. Got him, picked him up. So you know, it was and it was really quite interesting because in the next paddock were were these huge reds. But you can imagine that they were acting just the same as, as you know, behaviourally they were just the same with that in, in that particular part of the particular part of the cycle. So yeah, that and I suppose that's one of the reasons why I like deer so much, and I think that's why we all like deer so much. There's that intriguing component to them. Let's talk about it's backcountry hunting. Yep. So so can you give us a bit of a, a more detailed rundown of, of that process and, and how that works? Okay, the backcountry hunting is basically modelled on the R licence, but it's you know, we've only got the one block at this stage. Um, but basically, you go through uh, an accreditation, which is modelled exactly on the R licence, plus a few of the yeah, the issues you'll have in the territory, i.e., there's uh, snapping handbags in the river that want to eat you, and it's rather warm up here. Um, and then guys just sit that accreditation, and, and I do accreditations online as well for guys if they. Uh, they can't make it up here, and um, so I'll just uh, put them through the same one. It takes about forty minutes, um, and then you get you have to get a permit. Now I want to uh, just clarify that uh, you know a lot of the hunting that uh, NT hunters had has been lost. So this was set up for to make up for all the hunting that uh, NT hunters had lost. So it's primarily for NT hunters, but if you do your accreditation, there's backcountry hunting group. Uh, guys will take you out for a hunt, but you have to be uh, accompanied by an NT person uh, you know, on the hunt. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is, uh, you know, so we don't get swamped because, you know, the NT hunters will be pushed out again because it was just be booked out. And two, you know, there is risks up here uh, to do with uh, whether it's crocodiles or the heat and, and, and ex having an experienced local hunter with you. You know, it's, it's a lot different... You know, I've hunted New Zealand. I've only hunted New Zealand. Uh, you know, in Tassie, Victoria, uh, New South, uh, Queensland, and here, this country people, you know, see it as being pretty flat and open, and they think it's, um, you know, it won't be challenging. But it's they are surprised. Um, experienced hunters, you walk for twelve hours and 35, 38 degrees, and it's you know 50, 60, 80 percent humidity, it knocks you around. And um, and it, there are skills in it. I actually met a really good hunter this year. I shared a camp with a guy called Mick. I've followed him for years. I know he's a good bow hunter, but I just uh, happened to meet him out on the block. Um, and he's he works for Power and Water up here. And they've actually, the university up here has done studies on how to uh, better manage yourself in the heat. And uh, so I, I completely changed the way I hydrate. And now I, I don't have to carry, you know, I was carrying 10 litres of water a day, you know, for, for a 10-hour hunt. And now I can get a, get by on six litres. And not carrying that extra four uh, makes a difference. And it's all based around, 
having cold water, um, you know, I carry one of those Yeti things now and, and have ice in that and fill that up and I have another Yeti with hydrolyte and, and also um, chilling your core down. Rather than just drinking to, to hydrate, it's actually about chilling your core down and managing your, um, your body heat, not just, not just and, and uh, you know, I can walk quite comfortably, uh, you know, 10, 12 hours. I'm starting to get a bit sore at the end of it. Sometimes I've done 15-hour walks and that's, that's a long day for an old fellow. You know, I'm not that young anymore. But, you know, you can manage it. And it's that's the sort of mileage you have to do on the background hunting block to get animals. You just, you know, you got to have the attitude, if there's nothing in this gully, you go to the next one. And if there's nothing in that, you go to the next one. And eventually you all get onto pigs or horses or, or buffalo. Um, so you just got to have that attitude. And, you, and there is good hunting out there. And it is bloody superb. I'll, um, you know, the, the country is not floodplain. There's small floodplains, but the rest of it is sort of undulating hills, uh, some of it's steep. Uh, you know, with creeks and uh, creek lines in it, and it's magnificent open uh, woodland, especially after it's being burnt. And you just wander through that, and you know, eventually you'll bump animals, whether it's along the creeks in the middle of the day. If it's 38 degrees, it's great because you know that you, you hunt during those hot hours because the animals are concentrated on the water. And then you pull up about two o'clock because and they have a snooze for an hour, and and then you hunt from 3:30 through till dark, and then you walk the two or three hours home. So it's um. It's a really good block for that. So it's uh, so just think of the R license. It's very similar to that. Uh, we have a permit system. The each there are, it's broken up into uh, the uh, the blocks broken up into three areas, and each one's about hundred thousand hectares or so. So it's more than enough, and you can walk three or four hours either side of the main track. So that's enough to keep you keep you interested. And there are the good thing about it is there's there's empty country next to it that's not hunted. So the animals just keep coming in off that. There's a there's a guy down and uh, he's called a Queen's Councillor or whatever those sort of solicitors are from. New South owns the big block beside us and, and he doesn't manage it. Bloody Yahoo. Because it just repopulates us with buffalo and pigs every year. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's good. So, 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 so how many, yep, go for it, bud. Sorry, is there, you say that it's broken into three areas. You said it was two to 300,000 hectares or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it limited to, to bookings and, and numbers or is that just enough for anyone just to go for it? No, no, we try it. We limit the um, the smaller block, the central block, we limit to two to four hundreds. It's generally four hundreds on each block. And, okay. uh, yeah, just so that, you know, you can have so uh, – and generally they're in one party because we've got enough people to, to do that. Um, guys go out, you know, four, two will go one way, two will go the other way. And honestly, yeah. Uh, and we limit the uh, the permits to five days because you're generally knocked up after five days anyway. Gosh, that was my next yeah. question. Um, you're talking about 15-hour days and heading back to camp or heading back to, to home or the truck. Um, I wasn't sure whether people were yeah. doing multi-day hunts out there or not. Yeah, yeah, we've got campsites with toilets. So we've got long-drop toilets. They're really, uh, really nice. So there was uh, a funding boost given for to encourage people into parks and the enlightening thing about the NT is they, um, the park is actually thought of the hunters instead of just excluding us. So mm -hmm. while all the other tourist facilities were being upgraded, they says, oh, you know, would you like your campsites and uh, toilets upgraded? I went, hell yeah. So they, they've put in uh, long drop toilets. Uh, we have steel posts so you can hang shade cloth off them. And we have swing over barbecues at every, uh, at every campsite. So it's, it's actually really comfortable as well. So you do go out. Generally, this time of the year when it's 38 degrees and 90, 100% humidity, people don't camp overnight because it's a little bit, you know, it's it's still 32 degrees outside now. 
Um, it doesn't cool down much, so it gets a wee bit hard. Some people can't sleep when they're sweating. I could sleep anywhere. Um, so most people just do day trips at this time of year. Um, but we're, and we close the block up when it gets to about, uh, you know, generally when we get about 150 mils of rain on it, it uh, gets too boggy. And we don't want people to get stuck or, you know, get swept away in the creeks when the, because you get flash flooding through the place. Mm. And it gives a place of rest. And when we go back in again, the animals are all there again. It's great. So the, um, if you didn't have to worry about anyone else booking it, if you could just make a decision on the right time to come up there, what is the best time of the year to go up there and, and hunt buffalo if you're not used to all of that heat? Yeah, so yeah, the best time is actually at the moment, but it'll probably be a bit challenging from guys from, you know, south of Rockhampton. Um, so <laughs> uh, you're really August and uh, July, August for, for people, I say southerners, you know, Brisbane south. Um, yeah. Yeah, July, August. It's it's about thirty-two each day. It's just nice. You get that cool breeze. Or to us, you know, thirty-two with a bit of wind feels like a cool breeze, cool subtly. So it's um, you can handle that because there's low humidity. You've just got to you know manage your water. Yeah, and uh, and you really enjoy it. It is uh, pretty damn good. Yeah. yeah. So, so what makes November better? Because uh, it's um, you get that flush. It's damn hot, and the animals go to water. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get that flush of green on, you know, on the burns. So we're out there grubbing weeds out a couple of weeks ago, and I shot some horses. I was hoping to get back um, this weekend to shoot the pigs on them, but um, we had a lockdown. Damn it all! So yeah, there is really good hunting at this time of year. So what? what so with game, so it's buffalo, pig, and horse. Buffalo, pigs, horse. You're allowed to shoot uh, scrub balls. But you got to check, make sure they don't have an air tag in them. Some <laughs> <of> them. <laughs> but there is, we do have the Brahmins and the um, the Boz tourist types, you know, the old Redskins. Yeah. And uh, we have cats. And there have been deer spotted on the place. I've seen Samba crap in the place and, and cheetah prints. And I have monstered that area and haven't been able to find the animals. So they have seen Rusa, Samba and cheetah, but no one's shot one yet. Tipperary, um, you would have heard of that station, is next door. So. Oh, okay. Sure. So, yeah, that's where those animals would have come from. So if you're camping, you know, three, multiple days, you must be, you're taking in the water, there is no water there, so you're taking everything in? Yeah, take, generally take the water in. Uh, you can drink the water out of the creek, but, you know, you don't know if a buffalo or a pig's been uh, yeah. wallowing in it as well. And also, uh, I always carry a, a super straw, you know, one of those things you, you can yeah. pull the water through. Straw, yeah. Have, yeah, a super straw. I have, have um, used them once where we ran out of water. I had a younger fella who um, had drunk a lot of water and we were two hours from camp. We'd run out, so we actually had to jump in the um, in the creek and call ourselves down once we found a safe place to, to call ourselves down because you've got to be able to see the bottom. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be able to see the bottom, and that's where we drank too, so. You know, just got to be aware that there's uh, salties in all the creeks. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, um, you know, you, you, so you can drink the water, um, and, and there are guys up here if, if it's a fresh spring, um, but I prefer to take it. I just don't want to get uh, crook, you know. I, I just um, so I said you're, you're doing six litres a day. That, that's, uh, you know, if you're in there for a month, just kind of doing the multiplication in my head. It's a fair, fair, you're actually hauling in a lot lot of water. Yeah, yeah, we take, for, for two or three guys, we'll take in, uh, 
you know, 40 or 50 litres in, in um, you know, the big jerry cans. And then we'll we'll also freeze because uh, freeze down, you know, one and a quarter. So, and um, when I worked at fisheries, we had a super freezer there. So we would chill it down to minus 40. And that keeps you, it keeps all your food cool. And then you, you stick that in your pack. It's keeping you, and you, you drink it as it melts. Plus what I have in my um, my Yeti, rather than just sucking out of a warm, sucking warm water. Drinking yeah. cold water is really, really important. Yeah, it's an interesting thing really to bring up about that. I've never That'd heard be a good that. Pillager trick there, Mark. Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, well, I've been down in Pillager when it's, you know, in the 40s in January and, and it's, you know, the humidity is right up there because it's, it's that time of year when all the storms are rolling through. And, you know, you are just... You're literally drinking water all the time. There is no real water source in there, so we take that in with us. But I've never heard about this keeping, you know, drinking cold water. That's that's quite an interesting. I mean, awesome. electrolytes and all that kind of steam. Yeah, but actually drinking this, trying to keep it as cold as you can, so it's actually having a cooling effect as well as a as a, as a, a hydrating effect is quite interesting. Yeah, Charles Darwin University, there's a doctor up here, so I don't remember his name, but I'll send you, um, and you can put the link on there somewhere if guys want to look at it. Mm -hmm. So they've done a lot of studies on the power and water employees up here. You know, they have to wear full gear. If they're working on electrics, they, you know, they're wearing coveralls and boots. And so you can imagine yeah. working on this. So that's why uh, Charles Darwin University has done the study on it. And uh, and this, um, Mick was a, a sparky for, um, for them, and, and that's... Uh, you know, he's the one who schooled me up on how to do it better. So it really is. It's worth buying a Yeti if you're going to be doing that. And uh, just because just, the Yeti will keep your ice cool all day. So you just keep topping it up with your, your water. So it's putting that really chilled water into your core. Oh, okay. Really so you're, it, it, it's basically the, the cold and you're putting water into it. And so it, it's, it's slowly cooling yeah. that as well. Okay. Yeah. And they really work well. I have hunted out in um, the build up, you know, in, November in Arnhem Land and uh, this you know when I first arrived up and, I, and one day I actually drank uh, around 25 litres because we were hunting really hard and I didn't get up for an old man wee wee that night you know that included you know that was just because we did three hunts each day and it was just the water was pouring I was going out with an ex-army guy and we would chug you know one or two litres carry four litres and I'd drink all that get back to the car chug some more have a break we'd go for another hunt come back have some Coca-Cola you know, shit like that. It's just, and it was just pouring out of me. And I just went, man, I just, it's amazing, you know, when you get into these, oh, you know, you, you've done it um, out in the Pilliga, but if it's 38 degrees and 90, 100% humidity, it just pours out of you. And, yeah. and when you shoot an animal and you start working on it, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's amazing how much sweat you'll um, lose. Yeah. One year, I, well, actually, the best Billy I ever shot down there, when I pulled it out, it was in, it was in that January, and I put, you know, kind of didn't think about it. Shot it, oh, I got it, pulled out of the scrub, pulled it to the, the truck, to the to the track, you know, behind the truck. Got it there and went, okay, something's happened. You know, <laughs> yeah. Something, yeah. something's happened here. Drank some water, and just for the rest of the day, I just had it wasn't I was I wasn't ill. I just had no energy. That was it. I just, I'd kind of gone past the point of. You know, and so I had to rehydrate. And I was, I was just, you know, I think I got back to camp, had something to eat, and I was, you know, just literally in bed by six o'clock or something like that, and slept right through. Just we hit that point where that's it. I've gone past them. I've done something here. Something's yeah. broke. Yeah, it's it's amazing when you're out on that country. I work with indigenous guys now, and uh, you know, I still have my boots on. I feel like my feet are getting burnt there, and bare feet. 
and I've got my backpack with all the water and they'll take a 350 for a day. It's just different metabolism completely. You know, just uh, it is. Yeah, if you ever get the chance to go out on country with locals, um, yeah, take it. It's it's well worth it. It's just you learn so much from. I'll give you another hint if you're going to be hunting in the heat up here. Is um, also uh, you know going and getting uh, light uh, sort of tights, you know, long long undies, so that you don't chafe. But you can get the really uh, light airy jobs and, and having lighter clothing. I mean, light color clothing. Uh, I, yeah. I hunt in shorts generally, unless I'm pushing through an area where there's lots of brown snakes because uh, they're just starting to come back now. But we've been pretty lucky here, and wear light color clothing. It really helps. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, uh, instead of carting the whole buffalo head back, go and, uh, there's a sale on at the moment. At, uh, Bunnings have got Barco saws, so they they are the really the best ones. They're about twenty inches long, whatever that is in Newspeak, uh, with about 15 to 20 teeth per inch. If you go and get one of them and you, you, you skull cap your animal, you will halve the weight of the head. Because if you're carrying, you know, 20 or 30 kilo head for, for a few hours, it starts getting a little bit weary. Uh, and the other one is take a sissy pad, um, which is a piece of uh, foam rubber to put on your shoulder because no matter where you bloody put it, it's never comfortable. So uh, take a little bit of foam rubber and just balance the head on there and get rid of all that excess bone unless you want to, like my bloody son-in-law did. Jace, uh, carry the whole thing out because you want to have the full skull mount. There's no way I'm going to do that. I've carried one out of Arnhem Land and that was it. The rest of them got chopped. Oh, yeah. okay. So if you were, you, you, did he do a shoulder mount or something? No, he wanted to do the skull mount, you know, like the Germans do, but with oh, a buffalo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he's built like a brick shit house and so he carried it out. So there's no way I was, I was going to carry it. No, I've got a meat, I've got a meat haul pack and that's what I, that's it. That'll do. Just put that behind there and, yeah. yeah, if you're going to be carrying the full head and if you're going to do a head skin, you're looking at about 50 kilos probably. So it's going to be a haul. I, I don't have a mounted head. I haven't shot something they've really got enough anyway, but um, uh, you just be aware of that if you are going to be doing that. That's that's the weight you're going to be carrying. It's it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Southerners to come up and do that. I, I suspect that every single one of them is going to want to carry that 50 kilos out and, and, and near on perish on the way back to the car. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, look, look, I'd, yeah. I'd be one of those fools. I'd, I, I would be. I'd, I'd, no I'd doubt. And I, I like Euro mounts. I, I'd, go, I'd probably, I might consider dropping the bottom jaw out of it, but just it's a time. I, yeah. I, might, I might leave the bottom jaw there, but I, I'd want, I'd want to, yeah, I want a head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The tongue weighs a kilo, so get rid of that. That's oh, it. I'll yeah. drop the bottom jaw, get every every parcel of skin off it I could. Yeah. Uh, even even try and rattle as much brain out of there as I could as well, and uh, and and then try and haul it back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, is just, that is that what you find? Um, people coming up and and hunting up in the park. Water management's the biggest issue that people face, or you know, fatigue in the heat. Yeah, I think it's, it. It's, it sounds heat. pretty obvious, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a had a guy come up. Uh, and he was hunting in the block beside us, but I, he was from Tassie, and he, he's hunted in Mongolia and New Zealand. He says, oh, look, I'm pretty experienced. I go, it's, it's a wee bit different up here. And he, he, <laughs> saw it was pretty, he, he saw it was pretty flat, and he actually came, out, came, they came to our camp and had a beer after his second day, and he says, this is the hardest hunting I've ever done. So, because um, it's just, you're just grinding away for hours and hours and hours in the heat. He says, it's way harder than tar hunting or 
you know, climbing up for it. He hunted those Marco Polo sheep and um, somewhere in, um, you know, in, in Asia. He says he thought that was hard, but he says, no, nah, walking around in 38 degrees for 10 hours, that's hard. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So what kind of um, rifle? Is, it, is there a minimum calibre for, um, for backcountry? Yeah, it just depends on whether you want to live or not after you've shot the animal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So is that in is that in like a requirement to be living? If you want to live, tick this box. You know. So there's no minimum requirement, but um, you know, uh, three hundred eight with a um, a good Barnes triple shot. Um, I've shot mature balls with that, but you know, I've had a bit of practice. Um, mm. So um, you know, the biggest gun you can. Carry all day, so I, I carry a three seven five when I'm on my own. Yeah. Uh, when I'm with someone else, I take my three oh eight. I got a, uh, a Kimber Montana three oh eight and a three two five. They weigh about four pounds. They're great little guns. Um, so if I'm with someone else, that. But I really like three seven five. Is just works better, you know. And um, um, so if you're hunting with someone, if you're hunting with someone, three oh eight and running shoes. So yeah, well, if someone needs a hip. Have a heavy caliber between you. You know, one of us will carry a heavy caliber, and one will have a light. Uh, but and don't do headshots with three hundred eights. You know, like it's not like deer. Um, you really want to. You got to think of shooting it like a. Uh, you know, you're doing it with a bow and arrow. Got to thread it through because the ribs are still an inch thick. And if you hit the shoulder, the sh you know some of that bone on the shoulder. Really good constructive bullets. So there is a Remington Hog Hammer. It's uh, I use that in my 308, and it's got 168 grain Barnes X. Um, but I, you know, I use the Woodleys. You know, just use good Australian bullets. Uh, Woodleys, Woodleys are a fantastic bullet. I use them in the 375. Or Andy Mellon loaded me up a couple of hundred rounds, and it works really, really good. And in my 325, I got a 325 Winchester Short Magnum. Um, I just use the Barnes X and the Woodleys in that, and it works really well. So anything. If you're coming up from down south and you haven't done as much, if you've got a good Samba gun, that's all you need. You know, a 300 wind mag um, through to whatever you use on Samba. Um, your 270 um, or is a, you know possibly a little bit light, but you know seven guys do use them. Yeah. Your seven mil, seven mil is good. Seven, yeah. yeah, seven seven millimeter is. I've got a seven by fifty seven. Or Jason's got it now. Um, that, that's a really good caliber. It's just it just behaves differently. It's just. All those European, the 9.3 by 63, mm. fantastic. Nate's got one of them, really good caliber. I'm but glad you said that. Yeah, they are. They're is that what you got to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot yeah, of us, a lot of us have, have um, a lot of us have tuned into the seven mils now. Um, if I look around, sort of our hunting crew, a lot of the a lot of the new hunters that have asked for what calibers to get for general deer hunting, anything from samba through reds. You know, it's it's a big caliber on on fellow, but you're going to do it anyway rather than buy another rifle. Um, you know, neck shoot them so that you don't waste too much meat, sort of thing. But um, there's a lot of people carrying seven mils. So certainly three oh eights are around still. Um, yeah. You know, people two seventies, but that seems to be the caliber of choice at the moment. It's in vogue. Yep. Well, yeah. seven one fifty seven's fantastic caliber. That's the uh, the one I had, and uh, I've shot samba with it, hog deer. Tara, Shami, every bloody thing. It's uh, it's an old Morza. Um, so that seven mil is just it's sectional density. It just behaves differently. That that guy in Africa shot you know, several hundred elephants with the bloody thing. So yeah, yeah, they do work good. 
Um, the European calibers uh, just seem to be designed better. It's just the way it is. Yeah. I think it was Peter Ryan once said to me, we're talking about 9.3, and he said basically all the 9.3 is is a 3.75 after a couple of runs. It's just a little... <laughs> it's little, sloppy. Same, same, same effect. It's just a little, little, you know, a little... A little bit more manageable, and I, I thought yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And yeah, and the 757 uh, is is also you know it's it's just like a slow moving bus. It just does its job. Very just, mild recoil. That's yeah, right. Great keeps doing its job and just keeps going and going and going. So yeah, yeah. So just just um, if you're coming up, really you want to you know have the have something you know that'll hit hard. Um, it really gets your attention when you're tracking an animal along grass it's with the blood coming out of it, uh, and it's and it weighs about 500, 600, 700 kilos. Mm. Um, so uh, it really does, you know, you do pay attention. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's why uh, when we're out on the block, generally we hunt in pairs. So I want to go down each side of the creek, and if someone does wound something, you suspend everything, you come over, and one person's looking down at the ground and the other person's looking up because... Um, a buffalo is amazing how they can just hide in a little bit of grass or oh. a bit of savanna palm. That grey colour with a bit of shadow on it, it's just like breakup. It's amazing. It's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, getting really close to an animal, I, I shot one um, a couple of months ago from three metres. It's, you don't really want to be that close. It's, um, it's, you know, it's quite unnerving. This thing just popped up, um, it went up the creek and popped up in front of me. But you really don't want to be that close to an animal because if it goes wrong, it, it can go. It's a little bit different to a deer, you know. It'd be the same as being in a deer, but being in a deer crush rather than in a paddock. Yeah. Are they still a fairly flight animal uh, at that distance, or are they going to shape up to you at three meters? Oh, this thing just went up out of the creek. I actually dropped down the creek, and I was just so glad it went up the bank. And then I, so I tore up the bank, and uh, luckily I had open sights, and it just popped its head through the hole straight in front of me. Oh shit! So I just up and snapshot it just below the eye because I just. I didn't want it coming down the bank at me. Um, generally, they'll they'll go, but um, you know, with the lighter calibers, another another piece of advice is to generally try and shoot the animal that, so it's unawares because it may take a little bit of time to um, to bleed out, and that minute or two they might do a half by circle catch a wound and come back at you. So you know, these animals, they, these in the scrub balls, um, possibly will come back at you. You know, once they've been hit. Before yeah. they expire, yeah. Mm. Well, it's like anything; you don't want to die. Yeah, it's, you know, it's 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 gonna it's you know it's experienced a traumatic shock, so it's gonna go looking for the threat. So, mm. and they're the biggest boys on the block too. That's it. <laughs> Way bigger than you. So, yeah, yeah. Are there um, opportunities in there for bow hunters as well, Brian? Or is it right? No, no, not not there yet. I'm trying to get a bow hunting block on the other side of the park. So I've been talking to the parkies about it and we've got another one down the river, but it's, it's going to be for ADA members only because uh, the Firearms Council only does firearms. And so I'm a member of ADA, so it's going to be part of that because I'm doing the work for it. Uh, so it'll be it'll be the same as, uh, you know, just do the R licence accreditation for bows uh, and I'll add on a little bit of um, NT stuff for it um, or I'll accept the BCH accreditation and... Uh, and um, we'll just do a little bit of um, you know survival stuff, you know, just just the things about water, 
fires a real risk up here at the early part of the season too. People now during uh, you know what's winter down south is our dry season and July, August, September you can get 30, 40 knot winds and fires will race through the grass. So that can be a, a you know an issue for people until we burn the blocks out. But, um, mm. Yeah, so the bow hunting will um, hopefully we'll have these two blocks up next year uh, once right. the bricks open up again. But it'll be ADA only. So we, um, I mean, with the crocs, I suppose they're so well considered that that you know you kind of go, there's water, there's probably a croc in it. So it's what you got to think. Yeah. Yep. yep. So it's not really, whereas I suppose with, with the, the hydration issue, you know, that that's something that's going to sneak up on you. Yeah, so you've got to, if you're going to rehydrate all that, you've just, uh, you've got to find a, a piece of water where you can see all the bottom for quite a way. Mm. Yeah, and make sure it's not weed. You've actually got to see stones. Yeah. They're amazing what they, and also you don't go near any green water because that's what they're shitting in. So <laughs> they turn the water green. Uh, I can see oh, There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, you get a bit of algae in it. But generally the water out there is reasonably clean. You've just got to think that anywhere that it's deep enough to hold a croc, it possibly does. As you get into the headwaters, you'll see more freshies, and that's generally a sign there's not so many salties, but it doesn't mean there isn't salties there. Yeah. Yeah. Take a bucket with a rope on it. <laughs> oh, there's all sorts don't... of reasons not to go and hunt that, but it just adds to the excitement, doesn't it? Yeah, just yeah or just... When you're walking up and down the creeks or even in the gorges, you've just got to you've actually got to climb around it because there's some deep dark side of stuff. You just got to be aware that even though there might be game trails there, uh, the, you know there could be a croc waiting for a wallaby to go through. And then when you approach the water, the way you stand, you don't you don't squat down like a wallaby, and uh, you know. But but just the best just to keep away from it rather than thinking about how to approach it and what you do. Mm. So um, just going back to. Um going back to the best time of year, you talked about November, July and August. I'm not familiar with the wet seasons and what seasons happen when. Um, what what can we expect underfoot? Let's let's talk about July and August for the Southerners, those that are going to come up that want to stay a little bit away from the heat. Uh, specifically bringing that up around footwear. You know, we're wearing a, a good quality hiking boot or a pair of moccasins like Mark. Yeah, we get, get some lightweight um, breathable boots. So don't don't. I've worn out two pairs of Mendels up here. If you want to, if you want to wreck something, you bring it to the territory. It's just amazing how it, it just wrecks shit. Um, so just get some lightweight, uh, you know, boots. Don't, don't they don't have to be the ones with Gore-Tex. You want them to breathe. So lightweight ones with a mesh, really light hiking boots. Just go to BCF and the ones that are about 160 bucks. They're ideal, you know, and they've got to be light. And wear light socks as well, or bamboo socks. Yeah. Um, I wear shorts. I carry a snake bandage with me and, and putties. And in July, you could be pushing through grass. So, you know, that drags on you. You know, it's it's amazing, you know, pushing through grass for 10 hours just wears you out. Um, and and the, the hunting is harder. But once the, the fires come through, July, August, uh, you know, it, it, it just, it's really easy walking. And you're not pushing through grass then. And they are the areas you're actually trying to find. At the start of the season, you're walking and you're looking for those burns because the animals concentrate on the fresh green pick. And uh, so you have lightweight um, boots. Try and trim your pack down to what you need. So buy yourself one of these Garmin watches. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I use these now for that's my compass. I um, 
I use the, my phone with uh, Avenza maps, uh, you know, like they use down south. We copied that and we got georeferenced maps, uh, PDF maps. Use Avenza maps on my phone to, to actually um, navigate the block. We send you a map out that's georeferenced that shows you the boundaries and where the campsites are. And uh, you, can, you can use that. Um, hone your pack down to what you need for the day. So take a bit of protein and, and a bit of carbohydrate and your water and a camera and then try and keep it as light as possible oh, you got me yeah you can actually yeah, just drop talk about the drone stuff mate yeah so we'll, we'll, yeah. rather than just go straight into drones um maybe um if you could just talk about how to pull apart a piece of ground how do you manage a hunt if you're preparing for it and then once you're on the ground what tools you're using that's probably a good place to start yeah well you know it's a hunt in the NT or, I mean, even, even I, I used to do this down south with my samba hunting. It's not just about rocking up to where you're going to go. So I will spend uh, a few nights at least pouring over Google Earth and uh, and looking at the uh, the vegetation and, and where the water might be. Same used to be before my samba hunt. So yeah. I used to go and check all the gullies and think about where blackberries might be and how I will, and the way that the window uh, might work. So before we go out on the block, I, I always go over um, Google Earth, and uh, we've got Google Earth Pro at work. It's, it's pretty cool. And uh, really think about where I'm going to go. I've A lot of the blocks now I've marched, and I've got a fair idea where I'm going to go. It's, it all depends on the wind direction. Um, I also check the um, Bureau of Meteorology before I go and, and have a look at the, the way the wind's going to go for the next um, few days. There is a, uh, some system they've got now. I can't remember the name of it, but it tells you which, which direction the wind's going to go. And I jot them down in my notebook before I go. So I know on the Wednesday it's probably going to come from the southeast rather than the northeast or, and plan my hunts around that. So I might go east one day, west, you know, I'll try and plan the hunts around that. If it's if the wind flow is all from one direction, I may drive, you know, half an hour further down the track and circle back around through some gullies to get to so I can get the wind direction right for for the for the key times of the day that I'm hunting. Uh, when I'm looking at Google Earth, I'm working out which creeks I want to be uh, walking on and which ones might hold water. And then looking for, there is a uh, Northern Australian Fire uh, Index. Uh, it's, a, it's a website that actually tells you where all the burns are and where they've burnt in the last 24 hours, three days. I check all that uh, throughout the year so I know where the area, where the green pick's going to be. So this, and you're really lucky up here because most of the country gets burnt every other year. And you really want to be, if, you, if you've had a burn two weeks ago, that's where you want to be heading because the green pick's coming up. Yeah. And um, yeah, you want to be heading heading to those areas, and whether it's been lit by the parkies or indige or, you know, uh, lightning. It's uh, it's worth heading for. So you're always checking that stuff um, before you go out. So you, you do all that planning. And then at the start of the season, before the country is burnt, you've got to be aware that, Fires may be lit by um, indigenous people, or even just pig hunters going out, you know, on their bikes to, to and and it may may race through, you know, with a roaring southerly. So you've got to be aware of where you get, where you leave your vehicle because you, you don't really be wanting to be walk 40, 50 k's out of the block to the road to to to, to get phone reception. There is, um, you know, not a lot of phone reception uh, in here, but there are these uh, various garments things now that you can use. Yeah, some of the stations. Um, and uh, you know, even out remote, it's uh, people like you to have satellite phones now. So um, if you know if you're coming up, you might want to hire one of them or get that Garmin connection thing that that goes through the satellites. Um, 
And also some of the stations will show you where the, the on their map, they'll, they'll tell you where the phone points are. So, you know, some uh, one, one station that I hunt on, uh, they like you to phone in each night so they know you're okay. And if you don't phone in, they'll come looking for you. Mm. Uh, but, you know, generally, generally every night at 7 o'clock, we just ring up and say, hey, everything's cool. And, and we'll also let them know if we see cattle stuck in the, you know, any of the water holes and things like that. So, there's, you know, you want to be well prepared about where you're going out and, and preparing yourself, having making sure, you know, you buy the best uh, medical-grade hydrolyte that you can. Don't buy the cheap shit and squint you and stuff like that. Get the best stuff that they use in hospitals. Or, you know, that's the stuff you want to be putting into you. Uh, check with your doctor if it's okay to take magnesium tablets because, you know, I hate cramps. So I'll, I'll be taking everything I can to, to avoid cramps. Uh, I don't get the cramps as, as much as I used to now because I manage myself and, and I'm a bit more acclimatised than when I first moved up. Uh, another thing is, you know, if you're just driving up um, and you're coming up here, just turn your aircon off and open the window. You know, so you're not bloody in aircon all the time. Yeah. And just just acclimatise yourself on the way up. You know, it's and just keep yourself hydrated. But you know, if you if you drive for two and a half, three days from down south and you, you're in 15 degrees aircon and you step out in the 38, it hits you. So just leave, just just drive and enjoy the countryside and wind the window down and have your elbow out. And uh, you will be a bit more uh, acclimatised by the time you get here. It's a wee bit harder if you fly out, but, uh, you know, if you are driving, think about that. Um, yeah, and then the rest of it is just, you know, just uh, plan your hunt and hunt your plan. I, I, I just use all these old sayings. It just, it, it bloody works, you know. It just think about where you're going to go. And, you know, give yourself as much possible information, whether it's you're hunting buffalo or pigs or, or deer down south. You, you try and work out where, where they're going to be, where the wind's going to be, and it's just basics of hunting. And then putting yourself into that spot. And the other key thing, you know, whether it's hunting samba or hunting buffalo, every gully that you go into, you don't see one, increases the chance that they're going to be in the next one. So it's just you've got to have that mindset. You know, That's a positive really attitude like for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you ask guys who can walk. Yeah, I just walk. You know, it's just, it's really simple. You just put one foot in front of the other and you repeat that 28,000 times. You know, it's wow. just, that's what you got to do. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in that. You know, it, it may be great if you can shoot them off your veranda, but for most of us, it's just a matter of time in the field increases odds that eventually something will happen. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. earlier about drones, Brian. How are you using them out in the field? Yeah, look, I've I've just started actually, so um, I've got a um, an air S, and uh, you know these things can go out seven k. So you just put them up and have a look at your country, and just mm. get an idea where it is. Sometimes you'll see animals, but if you keep it up, you know, a couple of hundred meters, doesn't spook them as much, or they will come back to the water. But yeah, look, it's uh, you know, look. Uh, I haven't mentioned here, but I, you know, I've been doing martial arts for 50 years now. That's I believe a firm believer in sunset. You know, you never never go into battle where your mind hasn't already been. So you know, and and your mind includes uh, you know sending a scout out. So you don't need a scout these days. You just put these things up, and they're phenomenal. And uh, you just go out and buzz it. So uh, I'm really am just starting to get a hold of them. I'm hopefully uh, actually going to do my um, drone pilot's license when I'm down uh, in a month's time uh, for work. But they they are a great tool in in big country. So this late, I think the latest drone that's come out can do fifteen go out fifteen kilometers now. Man, that's, yeah, that's a massive. A, I've got a a drone. I've had it for probably 
five years, it can do seven easy enough. Uh, it just comes down to topography. Uh, not that I've ever done that because yeah. that would be completely illegal, um, but I know they can go that far. Uh, and I've I've uh, I've turned mine into a fishing drone. So whilst I take it out hunting and I, and I don't use it for going and spotting animals, once or twice I've used it just pure fluke. I've rounded up a herd of goats and pushed them back my direction, which was hilarious. We got that on video. Um, but normally I'm using it to go and check water points, things like that, where I've done my my e-scouting, you know, on uh, Google Maps. Yep. And then I'll send the drone out, you know, from the car. You know, it's going to go that way, however far it needs to go. And it's going to check that that water source that was on a map from two years ago is actually still a water source and it's holding. I find them really useful for that. Um, but um, go and get yourself a, a bait release, mate, and and uh, turn it into a fishing drone as well. You'll have a hell of a good time. Okay. Yeah. I'm just uh, getting my head around these things. I, I took one up to the Timor Sea when I was um, in fisheries and it took off towards Timor and I fought it back to the boat and and uh, it ended up just getting right back to the boat and then went plop in the water. In it. So if anybody finds one out there, <laughs> it's mine. I saw one. I saw one go into the water at Scarborough a couple of weeks. I was, I had me and a mate and, and my two boys were up for a, an afternoon fish, and there's a, we call it car park fishing. You can literally pull up in the car park and fish straight out of the back of the truck and straight for the boys. And some hit the water, and I thought, oh, you know, fish activity. And then there's this guy pulls up on a motorbike a couple of minutes later, and he's slowly looking, and he goes. Did you see something? I go, what? Well, he goes, oh, the drone went in just, just in front of us. He missed the, run your day. Missed the landing. Both went into the water. So that was it. So I went, oh, okay. There's one down there. So I started throwing a hook at it to see if we could find it because it's not that deep of water. But yeah. it was one. Now, if I can give you one tip then, Brian, for the, for the new drone pilot that owns a boat, I assume you still have a boat, yeah. um, don't launch it off your boat expecting it to return back to its GPS location. It's quite often the boat's moved and it just lands in the water. Uh, no, a lot of people have lost your hate spot. Yeah, no, yeah. I've been reading up on that. Yeah. yeah. Have no, come you back always to bring controller. it back manually. Yeah. Or bring it back to your controller GPS, whichever one. But, yeah, um, yeah it's quite interesting how these things tend to do it. I've, I've had mine coming back with uh, 1% or 2% battery, fighting it all the way back because once it gets to that point of battery, um, it, it's what fighting to try, to try and land safely and, tell you to come and find it another day and i've had it come all the way back at one percent and yeah it's it's uh it's not fun when you think you're about to lose a couple of grand worth of kit uh yeah. but just being a bit reckless so if you're down i mean up here there's no problems with using it down south you know having a bit of familiarity with the game laws down there you could use it for just scouting your country and, and knowing what the terrain's like absolutely and, uh, yep uh, you know, and just seeing, uh, you know, you, you'll see the tracks where animals are, are walking or, you know, you put it up in the fog and just finding out what the fog level is because I used to like hunting just on the fog level. Yep. So there's lots of ways you can actually do it um, legally. You know, it oh, might, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's ways you can. They're yep. great. The types down here, I think national parks, you're not supposed to use them. Um, but in state forests where most of the hunting is obviously, um, or all of the hunting is, if it's public land, you're yeah. supposed to have now my understanding is uh recreationally you can use them just fine um yeah. which is what we're doing it's recreational you're not supposed to use them um to harass animals but you're allowed to use them to go and scout and have a look if you're using them for commercial purposes you have to have permission but there's no reason for them to stop you it's got to be permission granted 
Yeah, up here, I think if you look up on the Parks and Wildlife Commission website, you just got to apply for a permit to uh, to use them out in the park. Mm. Uh, so, but Aboriginal land, there's no problem with that if you get if you're lucky enough to get access to that. Um, but yeah, parks will just give you a permit. It's it's still pretty easy to do stuff up here. Yeah, no, that sounds really yeah. good. I haven't got into the drains yet, um, but the conversations <laughs> pricking my interest. All my uh, they just follow you. So from a, from a camera point of view, you know that, that's what they do. There's a, yeah. I see there's a, there's a, there's a, a mini one at the moment that looks quite interesting. Get the yeah. yeah. Some of the some of the mini ones I find uh, really annoying. They're so small they buzz like mosquitoes. The the, oh, the tone is a lot harsher. Um, but there's a trade off between size. If you want to put it in your pack. The other thing yeah. too is like I've got a larger drone, like it's not large, sorry. We've got some big ones at work, but the one that I use for hunting, it was the smallest one at the time that I could get, which is the DJI Mavic Pro. It's it's about that big in body, but the arms all fold in. Mm. You can get a much smaller one, the the, the mini, and it's and it, and it feels a lot smaller and lighter, but its arms don't retract, so it actually takes up more space in your pack. So it can't fold up. So there's a bit, yeah, you've really just got to suss a few out and there's enough people with them now to be able to go and trial them and do whatever. But they're bringing out new ones all the time. Um, the noise factor is, is the one that you want. But almost all of them, Mark, um, now have a follow me function. They've got two of them. One of them can track an object. So, you know, you put it up and you draw a circle on the screen around an object and it goes flash, flash, that's a human or flash, flash, that's a car or that's a horse or it recognises it and then it'll follow it. But if it disappears behind a tree, it can confuse the drone uh, mm -hmm. and that becomes an issue. The other one that they have just to follow you is you set it up where where you want it, what what angle you want it to look at and have it follow the controller. As long as the controller's in your pack, it'll just follow you along. Yeah, because yeah, I'm, well. I'm getting more and more into video production and I thought, you know, that for the for a um, what they call the B-reel, you know, actually getting some footage that's not just you looking out, you know, because a lot of the trouble... Yeah. Hunting videos by yourself, you, you've got a very limited, you know, point of view. So, thinking about the drone for that. There's a guy in Alaska, Jake, has a, a face, uh, not a face, a YouTube channel. Uh, have a look at his stuff, and he recommends different cameras. And there is one specifically that's designed for following you in the bush, and it, it costs about twelve hundred bucks. It's, it's pretty limited what it can do, but it's really good at following you. Uh, but his is a really good channel. Just type in Jake and uh, drones and it'll come up with this dude from Alaska. I've been watching, and he, he also does really good instructional stuff. So, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, they're a good tool. They're um, mm. quite sophisticated in what they can do. Yeah, get away from sophistication. So let's talk about some basic things about hunting. If you <laughs> one, of, one of my interests is, uh, you know, like I said, martial arts. And, and um one of the key things I think that uh, that hunting is is actually a form of Zen, and that's that's I think we need to sell that as hunters to people. It's it's not just about going out in the bush. It's actually a uh, it's a whole experience. It's uh, and it's it's I think it's very very similar to me to, to martial arts because it it focus, you know when you are hunting deer or you you know you you're coming in whether you're bow hunting a pig or you're sneaking in on a buffalo. You know, your, your mind is really concentrated in this. You're in that space, that same space as, you know, when you're lining up opposite someone with a sword or, or you know, you've got your sparring gear on. So it's, it's um, and it also, just being out in the bush, it's it's the, the hunting is a, a, is a total experience. And I think 
uh, I think the ADA in its magazine is doing a really good job with the magazine. It's not just about going out and shooting a deer. They're looking at the total hunting experience and, and putting that in our mag. And I, I think we should be very proud of uh, what Barry and Ken are doing. It's, it's a really quality um, magazine they're putting out there. And, and if people on your podcast aren't members of the ADA, I think there's a, you can download an app, have a look at the um, the magazine and, and uh, mm. you know, just have a look at some of the, the things that we're talking about now as hunters. It's not just about going out and getting ant- antlers. are fantastic. I love black antlers and I love big horns, but uh, it's, the, it's the whole hunting experience that, that gets people in time and time again. It's not, it's not just, um, you know, there, there are some people who are, really mad keen trophy hunters but for most people it's it's that time out in the bush that connection with the bush that you don't get when I, I when I was a ranger I used to talk to people and trampers and bushwalkers are uh you know they're in the bush or they're passing through it whereas hunters are a part of the bush mm. and they will become a part of the environment you know when you're a predator it's totally different than being an observer that's you know, right it's a complete different experience I think it's what I always see is basically it's it's difference between being a participant and being a tourist. You know, yeah. often it seems that when we're especially the way things are going, you know, bushwalking and all that stuff is almost like a form of tourism. You know, you're off to see this thing and and get get you know, okay, we climbed this peak or we saw this, you know, we went to this waterfall or something like that. But when you're hunting, it you have a wholly different approach to what's going on. It was Andrew Day, wasn't it? Mm. Um, we've got a previous podcast with Andrew Day, who's a psychologist, and he talks a lot about the psychology of hunting and the the the, the very interesting thing that he talks about is how that some of the measures of, of good mental health, if you got that list and then wrote down what you do when you hunt and just remove the word hunt, the list is very, very similar, you know, like challenging yourself, making a plan, practicing, you know, learning from your mistakes, having a, you know, having a, a network of like-minded people who you can discuss and talk with, all those kind of things. If you just remove the word hunting from that and you just put those things and it's it's like it's almost exactly the same list. And so he was very much in agreement that it, hunting is not just hunting. It's, it's a far more, far more intrinsic thing. And I think that's why some of us, especially, you know, um, I put myself in that category. It's actually hard to describe what hunting is. Mm. Yep. You can talk about bits of it. You can talk about processes and you can talk about things, but people say, well, what is it? And then that becomes very, very difficult to describe because it's so intrinsic, I think, for people. Mm. He went as far to say, I think, um, that there is no other activity that you can get involved with that brings all of your senses together and hones all of your skills to a point that you are completely focused on, you know, that one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's really important for us to, to tune out of our, our day-to-day issues and lives and, and just reground. And mindfulness was the word he used a lot, you know, yep. just, just, just being present in doing what you're doing and honing all of those senses. Was, it was a fascinating conversation. And really another... Another point he mentioned, I can't think of it exactly, but it was about this the fact that it's is it it's it's a trans word is something trans and is the fact that when you're hunting you're using both sides of your brain at the same time. So you're not you're not heavily focused on one or the other. You're actually 
you know, you're using both sides at the same time. It's one of the few activities where you actually get that. Mm. Um, Lateralisation, I think it was. Yeah, lateralisation, that might have been it. Um, okay. It's about the fact that, you know, you're, you're not only kind of imagining a future, but you're processing the present right now. So, so and, as you, and, you know, you said, you know, if you think about what you said, you know, the next gully is going to be better than the last gully because they're not there in that gully. So, that, so that's it. So in the present, you go, oh, this gully's empty. But in the next gully, they're probably in that one. And that's actually that, that, you know, that idea of that you're in the present, but you're also thinking about a, a positive future, you know. And uh, you know, how I've never thought going. about it quite like that. I've always well, been one that says just one more gully. That's right. But, but, so, but never in the sense that you're talking about, well, this one's empty, so that one's going to be brilliant. Let's, let's right. get out. Let's well, it's, it. it's, it's like that old fishing, you know, the, the fishing saying, you know, one more cast. Yeah. yeah. I, did, I didn't get that one. So this is, the, this is the one. This is the one. You know, one more cast. You know, it, how long will it take? Oh, just one more cast. You know, and three days later, how are you going? One more cast. Well, I, I think, you know, you know, statistics where your odds are going up. Each time you you know you you go through a gully because I do some long walks here with people and they go why do you keep walking and go because we haven't shot something yet. Um, it's just you know your odds are going up because you you are sooner or later you're going to either trip over the animals or find that gully and then you really slow down and you know you're just looking for everything to come together. But you go through this one, it's not shit. It's oh okay next one and you know I just see my odds increasing as the day goes on. Mm. Well, I always, I always think that, you know, many animals actually, or I call them, they, call, they, they, they keep bankers hours, you know. You, you kind of think, oh, you're going to be up at, at, at dawn. But for a lot of animals, it seems that, you know, as the day progresses, that's when you start to see them. So, And especially with goats, I've always said goats keep bankers hours. You'll generally shoot goats between nine and three, you know, when, mm. and that's it. And yeah. so because the, the day is simply you're, you're comp- whatever you're doing, you're compressing things you're moving to that point when we were hunting the pilliga in the worst of its drought that what i'd ever seen and we're in there in winter too so it was cold and it was completely dry the you know the 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 game council map or sorry the the game licensing unit map had you know water sources on it and this is in pilliga west but what those water sources were, were they weren't actually dams they were just soaks that that were marked as as water, or maybe they were once dams, but they had no water in them. So what we were doing was we realised that there's probably pigs in the vicinity. So one guy would stick close to the track and one guy would walk in and we'd kind of figure out, you're either going to, you know, the the guy on the track's either going to drive them towards the guy on the inside or the guy inside's going to drive them towards the track. And we walked in and we just swapped. And I think it was on the third or the fourth one, you know, we found them and they were there. So we don't, and I don't know if they were on the first one and we pushed them to the second and I don't know if they, we pushed them to the third, and we put, but finally we caught up with them. And that was that process of just just keep going. This will, yep. this will work. It, it's, you know, it's sound reasoning. It, it'll work. Keep going. Yeah. Another simple saying is, uh, they used to have in um, some of the old guys in New Zealand, is, yeah, your odds get better the further away you get from your campfire. <laughs> so, you know, it's simple. You just got to keep going and keep away from the hut. You know, it's you, know, you, you just you don't shoot as many animals sitting around a campfire than you do if you're out. Oh, I believe walk until dark, and then you that, that's when you turn around and go home, mm. unless it's really shit country and you want to be out on the track. But yeah, you 
the country up here, you can generally walk, you know, you just set your compass and you just go uh, on your on your wrist.